There's this instinctive feeling that each of us have when what someone says does not match how they live. If someone says they believe in something but doesn't actually do it, it it creates this tension in us. It creates this frustration. And if we're not careful, it creates bitterness. And we might say, well, it's holy discontent, but it can quickly move from holy discontent to judgment and something that is harmful. But there's something in us as human beings that when someone doesn't practice what they preach, it rubs us the wrong way. What do we call this? We call it hypocrisy. And it is incredibly difficult for any of us as human beings when we see hypocrisy in others. But have you ever noticed how easy it is to see it in others and not in yourself? Like you're like, man, that person's such a hypocrite, but not me. I always do what I say. I always live differently. And the truth is that that isn't true. That all of us have these areas in our life where there is tension, where there is a disconnect between what we say and what we do. And part of our responsibility, deeply reliant on the Holy Spirit through that, is to close the gap. I want to just, for a moment this morning... I want us to take a courageous look at some areas of hypocrisy inside of the church. Because I think what can happen is we forget that there are people that are outside of the church that are asking the question, are you for real? Do you believe this? And there are some things that we get comfortable inside of the church doing that those outside, it doesn't make sense to them. And there's tension and frustration and confusion Last week, I quoted a verse from Jesus' teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you're not familiar with the, the Bible at all, there's two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are four Gospels, four accounts of the life of Jesus. And in one of them, Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's filled with Jesus' words, his teaching. It's this beautiful, beautiful compilation of Jesus as he's speaking. And so there's some theologians that say it's like 14 sermons all combined into one. And if you read it, there is some beauty in it. And I, I quoted one part of it last week. Matthew 6, 21, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Now these are Jesus's words. And a little bit further along, if you read it, and my encouragement would be periodically read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. A little further down in, verse, or in chapter 6 is verse 33. Matthew 6, 33. Jesus, again, is still speaking. He says this. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So after Jesus has talked about this battle for our heart that money represents, he begins to communicate a different way of life. He paints a picture for us of this way of life that leads to life. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Now, I think what can happen, especially for those of us that have followed Jesus for a long time, is that we kind of get comfortable and we go, yeah, Yeah, but the truth is for all of us, every single one of us, it should convict us and it should inspire us. Can you imagine seeking the kingdom above all else? Nothing before that. 
Seek the kingdom of God above all else. And then he says, and live righteously. This means that our way of life is in alignment with the way of Jesus, that our actions actually follow our beliefs. And as a result of that, seeking the kingdom of God above all else and living righteously, and it says, and he will, God will give you everything you need. Now again, not want, but need. Now, there's a degree that we hear all of this, and on one hand, we kind of go, yeah, of course. And then there's this other part that's in us, and you're like, I don't know if I can do that. Seek the kingdom of God above everything? Everything. Like, is that even possible? Jesus, I know, you are fully God and fully human, and you say it, but can I, can I actually do that? I think if we're being honest, that there's this tension that it creates in our heart of going, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I don't even know if that's possible. And yet, beautifully, when we look at Scripture as a whole, we see, as a result of that, the early church in Acts actually living like this is true. It's really beautiful for us to, to look at the early church as a model and example of this is what it looks like to actually live in the way of Jesus. Are they perfect? No. There's all sorts of mess. And yet we see a picture of life as a result of seeing Jesus actually raised from the dead and actually seeing a community formed as a result of this. In Acts 4, 32 to 35, we find this section of scripture that is so significant. I'm gonna read from it. Acts 4, 32 to 35. But I wanna remind you when you're looking at scripture that Acts is a continuation of Luke. One author that writes one story, Luke looking at the life of Jesus and Acts mostly looking at the expansion and growth of the church. And so in Acts 4, 32 to 35, and I'll read from the New Living Translation, if you, if you have the NLT, you'll have this, this title, and that wouldn't have been in there in the original language, but it helps us to categorize or to kind of look at chunks, and it says the believers share their possessions, spoiler alert. Verse 32, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Such a beautiful passage as we see this community that's been formed in the way of Jesus. And in verse 32, all the believers were united in heart and mind. Can you imagine? And when you think about our scenario and our cultural moment that we're in where we hear all about polarization and division, can you imagine the kind of community that is united in heart and mind, not just in the way that we think, but also in how we feel and respond, in our desires, in our thoughts and our desires. Imagine a community like this. I would suggest to you that this is what the world desperately needs right now, the kind of community that is united by something that actually matters. The name collective actually means a group of individuals united around a common purpose. And for us, we exist to make it all about people seeing Jesus. He is the center point. He is what unites us. Because the beautiful thing is there's all sorts of other things that are different. 
There's unity in diversity, but Jesus is the one at the very center. This is what we see in the early church. This is what I hope for. It says all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. What did they share? Everything. They shared every single thing that they had. And when we see this in the early church, we think back to Jesus' words in Matthew 6, and we see this not just being theologically understood, but actually lived out in a community. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. And in Acts 34, 33, the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. This community of Jesus' followers actually lived like the kingdom of God was above everything else. That there was no sense of personal ownership that that trumped everyone else. That it was constantly going, God, your kingdom first. You are the one that provides. You are the one that gives. You You are my priority here. And they lived with the kingdom of God above everything else. And we see God's great blessing was upon them. I mean, isn't that what we want? Like, can you imagine honestly if that is actually what we experienced? God's great blessing on every single thing that we did. And yet we find here there seems to be this connection between where we position God in our life and how he actually shows up. And in verse 40, 34, there were no needy people among them because those who own land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So I want you to notice this. People in the early church had every single thing they needed because they lived like the kingdom of God was the most important thing. They lived as if God was actually everything that he says that he was, as as if Jesus was exactly who he said he was. They sought the kingdom first and they lived differently. And because they shared everything, everyone had everything they needed. Now, it's an important thing even to acknowledge that sometimes for those of us, and I know there's some in the room that you have needs, that there's some things that you're stressing about finances, or you're stressing about what you have, and, and you're not sure how it all works out. And, and oftentimes we go right to God, and that's how we, sh- we go, God, I need you to provide for me. But notice the pattern here. God provided through people, not just to them, that he used the community to meet the needs of the people. This is what it's meant to be, to be the church. It's not just to see God move powerfully, and we would want that and expect that. It's also to see him move powerfully through the hearts of his people to other people. This is what community looks like, where we say there is no need among us because we are willing to share everything that we have because it's not ours to begin with. I look at this early church and I think if you're like me, there's this sense of tension you feel because you go, I don't think we look like this. Like there's some parts in us that yes, and then there's some other parts that I think we've been shaped and formed so much by North American materialism and consumerism that it, that it, just, it, it just distorts some of the things that are in us. And the truth is, when you look at the early church, you actually see a people that were way 
less wealthy than we are, and yet way more generous. And it creates, again, this tension in our hearts of going, so what, what is the disconnect here? What is the disconnect for me? Why is it that living like this, the way that Jesus actually communicates, why is that at times so difficult? We're so formed and shaped by our culture and invited to be shaped by the way of Jesus, and yet it is difficult, and it requires dying to ourselves, and at times that's so hard for us to actually do. Maybe you've heard about the idea of tithing uh, at Collective. Maybe you've heard those words, and maybe you've heard them and you have no clue what they mean. Like you hear someone talking about tithing, and you're like, I don't know what that is, so let me just, let me just give you a brief uh, tithing represents 10%. It just means 10%. And so we talk about tithing as a way of giving 10% of our after-tax income to the church. And this week, if you're curious, and my encouragement would always be to not just take my words for anything, but actually go back to Scripture and go, what do I see? And if you're curious, you can spend some time studying the biblical idea of tithing. I do want to let you know that Jesus affirms the tithe in a discourse with the religious leaders. But then after that, we don't find any more teaching about tithing. So if you look at your Bible and you split it up and you have the New Testament, you have the four books in the beginning that talk about Jesus. And then after that, you'll see a bunch of other books, many of which that are written to early churches that Paul started And you don't see this pattern of tithing beyond Jesus. And so in the context of the church, it creates some level of, what do I do with that? What do I do with tithing? What do I do with generosity? What is the invitation or call for those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus? And I'll give a really simple overview, but when it comes to generosity in the church, there are two major thoughts, two major camps, if you will. Both love Jesus, but there's one camp that says the tithe is still a requirement. We need to give 10% of everything. It is something that we, the law doesn't completely go away. It's fulfilled through Jesus, but this is still there. And then there's this other group that says, you know, we're not, we're not beholden to the tithe. Instead, if we see through scripture, we see this pattern of living generously. One of the, the phrases that's used is giving grace gifts or grace giving. And so two schools of thought around generosity. Now that's a a simplified overview of everything, but it's helpful for us to understand because some of us have heard, okay, we've heard tithing and going, so is the expectation to give 10% or is it this other thing where we're just expected to give generously? And I wanna spend a little bit of time looking at that, but before I do, I wanna define our current Reality, Because we find in this, the early church that shared everything, and it causes us to go, what's our reality now? Like one of the things that is important for us as a church and for me as a leader is to define our current reality so we can just be honest about where we are. And so I'm going to give some stats, track with me. They tell an important story. If you love stats, you'll enjoy this. If you love stories, I'll try my best to, to connect the stats to a story. But you'll see something on the screen. So if you're a visual person, you can actually look at the stats on the screen. But let me just share. And this is not, this is North America as a whole. Studies show that over the last few decades, Christian in North America, Christians in North America gave between 2 to 3% of their income. 
Stats show that one out of four Protestants in North America don't give anything. So that means that, that a quarter of Christians in all of North America give nothing away. Not even like the occasional $5 gift, they give nothing. So a quarter of Christians don't give anything. In Canada, the average Canadian, so that was Christians, this is the average Canadian. The average Canadian gives less than 1%, 0.53% of their annual income to registered charities. Now it's interesting when you think about how wealthy we are as a, as a country and yet the average Canadian doesn't even give 1% of their money away. And then for Christians, I think the stat in Canada is something like 2.5%. The average Christian in Canada gives 2.5%. And in comparison, if you look at the Great Depression, so one of the most difficult times for North Americans when people didn't have money, they didn't have food, they still gave away on average 3.3% of their income. And so we have some comparisons. So we look at the early church, and then we look at even as Christians in, in the 1930s, and we find we are less, as a whole, generous even than them. And there was a 2013 study that found that those who do tithe, those that give 10%, make up only 10 to 25% of the whole church, and yet the same group of people represent or contribute to 50 to 80% of the total budget. And so you have this small group that are funding a, a huge percentage of the kingdom work. And another study looked at people that tithe. It took a whole bunch of research and data and pulled a whole bunch of people around, people that said, I, I tithe, I give 10% of my income. 25% of the people said that they gave 10%, but when the data was checked, only 3% of the group gave more than 5%. So I want you to think, 25%, a quarter were like, yeah, I tithe, and of that, 22% did not realize that they don't even do it, and then only 3% even gave more than 5%. Now, what does that tell us? Like, it's in, in, interesting to look at stats because they tell a story. What does it tell us about North Americans and Christians as a whole in North America? It tells us that, that if we track historical patterns of giving, we are becoming less generous, not more. And so we're invited to live a different way of life, and yet we are more prone to hold on than ever before. And, and this is not just like out there reality. I find this in my own heart. This tendency to go, you know what, I'll just, I'll just keep this, and what, it, what does it look like for me to have a little bit more security and a little bit more I have enough at the end and we see here this pattern as we, as we have more, we give more. You know, what's really fascinating is that there was something that I was reading that was saying that, that higher income families actually decreased their giving through COVID and lower income kept or increased. And I've noticed this. I, I did a missions trip with a bunch of students in Calgary that was in inner city Calgary. And one of the things that we did is we worked with this organization that that helps support people who are experiencing homelessness. And, and we, were given, uh, we were given a gift card. And our responsibility was to find someone living on the street that we could buy lunch for. And so we bought lunch for this, this lady who was amazing. And you know what her instinct was as soon as we got her food? Who can I share this with? Like she's sharing all of this. She has very little. And I was thinking, this is the picture of what it means to be North Americans. 
Those that have very little tend to be more and more generous. And those of us that have a lot, we kind of go, no, I'll keep this. I'm good here. What is that? This being shaped and formed by consumerism and materialism. And when I compare it to the way of Jesus, I see and I experience this tension. The data also suggests that those of us that do give, often we give less than we think. And yet I see in this the early church who shared everything that they had and there was no need among them. And it causes me to reflect and I go, is that true for us? Is there no need among us? And I think we all know the answer to that. The answer is, of course there's needs among us. And I wonder if at some level there's this failure of discipleship to acknowledge that we need to be the kind of community that that doesn't just see needs but actually has the ability and margin in our life to meet them. Like, can you imagine the kind of community like this where there actually was no need among them? Imagine the impact that that would have in the people around us. And so it raises the question, if there's two schools of thought around generosity, when it comes to this, is, is, is the goal to just tithe? Is that the standard, or is it this living generously, these giving grace gifts? And the reality is, there's some really compelling theological arguments that say the standard isn't to give 10%. And some of us I know in the room are like, okay, I feel better. I don't, 10% is a large amount, but I have bad news for you. Is that the expectation is not that you give less than 10%. If you actually look at the New Testament, every single example of generosity past Jesus, it, it always exceeded tithing. It never went less. It was always more than 10% than less. And so we're left with this tension of going, uh-oh, like, what do I do with that? Okay, so I don't know if I want to tithe. And we look at the early church, and they go, yeah, no problem. Let's give everything away. And you're like, whoa, that's a large gap. And yet we find this reality, this life that is radical in its generosity. And I look at the kind of community that produces, and I go, I want that. I want where, where God's clearly blessing all of it where we're able to tell stories to people about the way of Jesus and the fact that he rose from the grave as we celebrate Easter and God moves in power. If we look at the early church, we see millions of people coming to faith, change the whole trajectory of the entire world because this group of people that came face to face with Jesus said, it's not mine anymore. It's not my way. It's not my life. It's not my stuff. And so it challenges something in us in 2023. And so, regardless of those two schools of thought, what would be the purpose of tithing? I mean, if you go into, you know what, I just want to live generously, what would be the purpose of tithing? I believe that tithing is, is a beautiful commandment and opportunity, but what I love about tithing is it creates in us a pattern and a habit of generosity. The average recurring giver, that is someone who gives monthly or weekly or bi-weekly, the average recurring giver in North American church gives 42% more than someone that gives occasionally. 42% more. And that could even be someone that gives large amounts. And, but there's something in it about us 
habit forming as we habituate generosity, that we regularly go, I'm giving consistently no matter what, because we'll all find it. And I have been here where, where at the end, you're like, I'll give at the end, and you find I have nothing left. And so for us, it shapes us and forms us. And I'm also incredibly aware that there are some of us in the room that 10% seems exceptionally difficult. Like you go, I don't even know how to start. You're talking about 10% and then this other idea of giving even more than that, I can't even get to 10%. And my encouragement would be begin where you are. Begin where you are, but create a habit early. Create a habit of generosity that you would give to God what is his in the first place, that you'd say, I trust you with my money. Begin the habit of generosity. I know there's some of us that that is terrifying, and so I wanna encourage you and, and, and tell you we, we celebrate every single step of faith that you take. Every single time you go, I'm gonna trust God with my money, not myself, it is huge. But there are also some of us that have camped out in the 10%. And it's long since stopped being a faith exercise for us. Like I think about in my own life, and as, we, as we've tithed and you go, there's a degree that you go, that's what we do and that's how we've budgeted. What does it look like to live more generously than that? What does it look like not to just stop there and go, well, I did my thing, that was great, but instead going, God, may it be true that there's no longer any needs among us. Like, may we live in a way that our stuff is not so attached to our identity that we're willing to give it all. We go, I don't care. I want that in my own life. Maybe you do in yours. So for us, we recognize that there are habits that we shape and we form. But can you imagine a Christian community that is radically generous? There's actually research around this, and I think it's so fascinating. Every single Christian in the U.S., and so I'll just combine it, North American Christian, if, if they gave just 10%, there would be an additional $165 billion for churches to use and distribute for kingdom purposes. Imagine that, $165 billion. And you ask, what could you do with $165 billion? Like, what would happen if we just had, all of a sudden, $165 billion we could solve global hunger in five years. Five years. That's crazy. $12 billion of that could completely eliminate illiteracy globally in the same time frame. So can you imagine that? So every single Christian actually lives generously, and then in five years there's no more hunger, and in five years everyone is literate. Imagine the impact that would have on our world. There's this significant piece here that we're seeing, and you go, okay, that seems so massive, and, 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 and yes, there's a degree that there's personal ownership in that, but I read another article that said that if, if Christians actually gave like that, we could fund all overseas missions work, all of it, and still have $100 billion for all churches to expand ministry impact. Like That's, a, that's amazing to me, and yet that is so challenging. Because the disconnect is significant. And obviously, I don't sit there and think, okay, we're going to, as collective church, suddenly have $165 billion extra that we just go, what, what should we budget this year? But imagine if we as a community, imagine what we could do if, if God grew in us more generosity, 
if we grew in this area? Let me give you some ground level things, things that I've been thinking a lot about. First is, I don't know if you've paid attention to what's happening in mainline denominations, but the Anglican church, self-reported, they're saying by 2040, we'll have no people and no money. And I don't know if you know that, 2040 is not that far away. So the Anglican church that owns a ton of property is saying we're going to have no people and no money. And that's not just the Anglican church. There's a lot of mainline denominations. That's where they're headed. But it's interesting to me. And what I've seen, because I obviously as someone that we're portable, we've had conversations with Anglican leaders, and I see this, this, this protection mentality where it's going, maybe we can just sell some of our buildings and have a little bit more and just keep, maybe we can stave off this death a little bit more. But can you imagine if as a church and then the church in Ontario, in Canada, that we had so much margin that rather than the Anglican church selling churches to be converted to high-rises, that we bought them and that we brought life into them and that we impacted communities through them? And I know that there are some of us that you go, well, do we really need more church buildings? And let me just suggest to you that there's a big difference to our community when we communicate that we are invested and planted. Being portable is great, and it is a gift, but being planted and permanent in communities to be outposts for mission is significant, and the opportunities presented are huge. Like even for us, we had a meeting not that long where we were talking about what would it look like to, to use the kitchen at our, our HQ, which is a United Church we're renting space from. And, and we made meals and we had a freezer filled with meals so when there was an opportunity to, to give away, we could just give meals to people. Like imagine what we could do. Imagine what other churches could do if we had the resources to be able to be in a position where we didn't just say, you know what, sell it to whoever will give you the most money. We said, imagine if it could continue being what at some point someone started it to be. Imagine if we could, if we could hire more pastors, certainly at Collective, and develop more leaders who develop more leaders who reach more people and start new things and reach people that aren't being reached. Imagine what it would look like to be a community of radical generosity. Or what about church planting? We started Collective Church because we know that the most effective way to reach people that aren't being reached is to start new churches. Imagine if we could get those Anglican churches or other churches and then start new churches in different communities that continued to reach people. Or beyond that, imagine if we had margin, even more margin in our budget, and we could give more towards people who are church planting. When we first planted, before we planted, we had to raise $50,000. And honestly, there were moments that 50000 could have been $50 million. It seems so massive. And I just imagine, and it's a dream of mine for us as collective church. Imagine if we could give church planters their first big check and just say, we believe in you. We had a church who was, another church plant that was started by a friend of ours who who actually went, we're, we're backing you, and they gave us a check, but they also guaranteed a $50,000 loan for us. $50,000, that's substantial. And they went, we believe in you. Imagine if we could do that for more people. Imagine if we could say to people that are trying to reach others and go, hey, we're for you and with you. We're not building one church, we're building the church. We're thinking kingdom. 
We're seeking the kingdom of God above every single thing else. Imagine if through radical generosity we can invest in theological training for everyone. Like there's a group of people that you get to go to seminaries and for some people that's not a reality. What if we could actually train people more effectively? You know, if you look at the history of seminaries, is that they all birth, were birthed out of the local church. Imagine if the local church could better resource people to, to have firm foundations of faith, understand orthodoxy, understand theology, but not just as a concept, but lived it out. Imagine if more of that happened inside of the local church because of people's generosity. Imagine the, the meals that could be made, the messages that could be preached, the people that could be reached, all because of our, as Canadians and collective, generosity. Could you imagine what we could do if we actually lived like this early church? Listen, you can give your money to all sorts of different places, but if we look at this passage, and certainly I see a pattern through Scripture, there is this pattern of giving through the local church, giving to and through the local church. And there's something that happens there because we can give individually and, and I think it's important for us to be people that give individually, but there's something in it when it's not just I gave this, but we as a church gave this. And people from the outside aren't just looking at collective church, but they're going, is it possible that the, the Christian church actually is more generous than I realized? What would it look like for us to live in a way that Jesus' name could be made famous even through our generosity, not just ourselves? I see that pushback. I've certainly seen it on social media, pushback of churches that are parading, look at all the things that we're doing. And, and, and I think it's a, it's a challenging tension because you want to communicate what you're doing, but I can also see the part of going, God, let us be generous even when no one notices because maybe just one person, maybe someone in an organization is like, that, that's, that's what Jesus represents? And it's not just about one person, but it's, a, it's about a movement, the church, kingdom of God? Imagine if we could celebrate the kind of generosity of the church we see in the early church. I believe it would shock the world. And I want you to know that the world is looking at us as Christians and at some level asking, do you really believe what you say? People are looking at Lee and I as leaders and going, do you really believe what you say? And the tension that comes to is we can't keep doing what we've done if we want something different. If we want something different, we can't keep doing the exact same thing. Dallas Willard has this, I was, I was learning about it this week, watching some videos, and Dallas Willard, who is a pastor, and theologian, he taught uh, philosophy at a school in California. He was talking about how we change. And he was saying we need three things. He, think about the acronym VIM, V-I-M. We need vision, we need intention, and we need means. Now, I've, I've presented to you elements of each of them, but you think about vision. Vision is I can see something better than where we are. But intention is the part that sometimes is hard for us because we go, I actually at some level, whatever it is, just in following Jesus and changing our life, I have to be unwilling to remain the same. Like at some point I have to go, I'm unwilling to keep doing what I've always done. 
And for some of us, it's hitting rock bottom or coming to the end of ourselves. We need vision, yes, a picture of what could be. We need intention of going, I'm unwilling to stay here. I want change. But then we need means. Because it's not just enough. Take generosity or go, yeah, I, I see generosity. I want to be generous. So hopefully that happens. We need to actually begin to think about the habits in our life and who they are forming us to be. And when we look at the early church and it says there are no needs among us, and let me just tell you that is not true even in our community. Right now there are people in the church who could use financial help and there are people in the church who could use a car. And so maybe there's people in the community that go, yeah, I wanna, I wanna meet some of those needs. I wanna see that people have their needs met. See, the beautiful thing for us as a church just behind the scenes is Every single year, God has been generous and grown our budget. From the very first day of collective, we have been self-sufficient, which is, is very uncommon for a church plant. And every single year, we have more and more margin. And so it is because of the generosity of people. And so there's no part of me that, that the motivation is, if you just give more, then we'll have more because we're really struggling. Zero, zero. I just go, God, I want more for us. Like, honestly, I, I want more for us. And not even just inside of the church, I have dreams and visions and all that stuff, but I go, what if we could do that? What if we found someone that had needs and we were able to take care of it? Like, I just, I just Lee and I just watched Jesus Revolution, which I would highly recommend. And one of the parts, one of the scenes was one of the guys needed a car, and so they all grouped together and bought him a car. And I was like, what if we could do that? Like, imagine what we could do if we actually live like this is true. Imagine if, through putting the kingdom of God first, we experience what we see in the early church. Let me remind you, let this be vision that maybe leads to intention and hopefully to means. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. I don't know where you're at today. I can tell you that as I've prepped this, that God has been working in me and, and confronting and convicting and challenging me. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is whispering to you. Maybe some of us in the room, you're going, I need to actually begin to take, make a plan to work towards tithing. For others, it's giving above the tithe. For others, it's something completely different that God is whispering and you know it's him. And my encouragement would be, Listen to what he's saying and just do it. Let's be the kind of community who practice what we preach in obedience to how God is leading. There's a church in New York City called Church of the City, New York, and they have something called a generosity liturgy. And it's a way of condensing theology and ideas into something that, is, that, is, uh, that they could say as a community. And I read it at first. I read it a few months ago, and I was so inspired and one of my goals this summer is to write our own. But before we do that, in the meantime, I want to read this. I want to read it for us. And maybe in the room, maybe there's some people that go, I, I want this to be true for me. I want to invite you to consider a new way, embracing a new way of generosity. 
So let me read this over us. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and and am belong to you. Bought with the blood of Jesus, to spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. I want to pray for us, but I want to encourage you, wherever you are, listen to God's voice and do what he says. Think vision, intention means. What do you want to see? What are you willing to do? And where are you going to start?